Welcome to the Red Light Report, your number one source for all things red light therapy, where you will learn how to optimize your health, wellness, and longevity with the power of photobiomodulation. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Belkowski. All right, guys, welcome to another episode of the Red Light Report. Today, you better be prepared to learn because we got a gentleman with a wealth of knowledge. He's got over 250,000 followers on Instagram for a good cause. He's been putting out some high quality nutritional information, health information, wellness information for years at this point. And he's recently graduated from naturopathic medical school. And this is Dr. Tyler Jean. And he's passionate about educating others on the importance of food as medicine, inspiring them to embrace healthier lifestyles. And he's going to take his naturopathic degree and will use his practice to take a more integrative and preventative approach to healthcare. This is also the approach he currently uses through his platform, like I mentioned on Instagram, Functional Foods. There, he empowers his audience with recipes, educational info, brand recommendations, inspiration, and more. And his most recent Instagram posts include things like um, a guide to help you um, help read your labels, microbiome-friendly foods, six nutrients for healthier skin, and Tyler Jean's 12 favorite supplements. So that gives you a little taste of the type of information he provides. But without further ado, Dr. Jean, welcome to the Red Light Report. Thank you so much, Mike, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. And so just walk us through your experience in naturopathic school in route to becoming a naturopathic doctor. Yeah. Wow. It's, uh, it was a long four-year journey. I mean, I feel like parts of it went by fast and other parts went incredibly slow, especially at the last year in 2020, um, the pandemic and things really slowed down and transitioning to online really. And even kind of going to this telemedicine model, which, you know, I honestly learned a lot from, I think, you know, this move to telemedicine and, and virtual consults and, and practice um, is here to stay in some capacity. You know, I think there is importance in seeing patients in person and practicing and, and utilizing physical exams to come to a uh, diagnosis. But, you know, I learned a lot by kind of being transitioning to online. And so this journey has been very fulfilling. It's also been very difficult. And so uh, it feels surreal to be on the other side and really just focusing on studying for my licensing exam coming up at the end of the summer. And um, really looking forward to all the opportunities that have kind of opened up. As you, as you mentioned, I have this uh, platform on Instagram and it has been an amazing outlet for me of creative expression. And one of my passions is educating other people and educating people how to cultivate health. How can we be healthy? which I think is a very different mindset from our allopathic paradigm. And you think about medicine that is more focused on sick care, treating either acute disease and or chronic disease, instead of really focusing on how do we prevent disease and how do we actually cultivate good health? What are those practices and what are those lifestyle things that we control and really focusing on this empowerment aspect. And that's really where I got that inspiration with my Instagram platform, Functional Foods, which I started five years ago. So it's been a journey. I have learned a ton. And honestly, what I'm most excited about is being in the medical field that I'm going to forever be a student and I'm going to always be learning. So I'm really just looking forward to kind of take everything I've learned in school and now start applying this in clinical practice. That's awesome. And of course, congratulations on graduating. I can still remember when I graduated from physical therapy school, the whole time you're in school, it seems like there's never going to be that light at the end of the tunnel. You're just kind of trudging through. There's the ups, there's the downs, but you finally made it. So big congratulations to you, Dr. Gene. So you kind of alluded to this, um, how the, the naturopathic model differs from the allopathic model. Um, were there any surprises going through that medical schooling 
the juxtaposition between naturopathic and allopathic, was there anything that jumped out to you? Yeah, there's a couple things. I mean, what really stood out to me with naturopathic medical school and why I kind of went this route as opposed to going down the conventional route of either becoming a medical doctor or a doctor of osteopathic medicine, which I also considered, was really the principles of naturopathic medicine, which is really treat the whole person, treat the root cause, so identify and treat the root cause, prevention being another one too. Doctor is teacher, dolcere, which um, I'm really passionate about because I really believe that physicians and clinicians have this uh, unique ability to empower other people by instilling the knowledge necessary for living a very healthy life and, you know, really putting the power back into the patient's hands. That really resonated with me as opposed to, you know, diagnose and just treat with some type of pharmaceutical where, you know, it really is not empowering and it does not really take on the the reasons why this person maybe developed these conditions. And um, in a way it kind of leaves in my opinion, at least the patient, you know, hopeless. And like, there's nothing else I can do other than take this medication for the rest of my life. And so, you know, what really stood out to me was more of this holistic approach and actually identifying what is the root cause. Because you think about some of these common ailments that so many people suffer from in the Western, you know, United States, but also worldwide, you think about cardiovascular disease, you think about cancer, you think about elevated lipid levels. So like a lot of people with high cholesterol levels, you think about Alzheimer's and dementia, diabetes, so prevalent this day and age, but instead of just prescribing some type of drug to kind of palliate those symptoms and to help control symptoms, why are those diseases manifesting in the first place? And that's where it really looks at all these different lifestyle factors. And that is something that, you know, again, I gravitated to. And what I have appreciate about, appreciated about my education is we talk about those nuances, those root cause factors, and we have such a diverse toolkit to help meet our patient where we're at and treat them. Um, and that can be clinical nutrition. It can be homeopathy. It can be herbal medicine. It can be physical medicine and certain other modalities that we can use to kind of help adjust the frame and support the frame and weakened organ systems, hydrotherapy, which is kind of altering hot, cold contrast therapy that has been around for, you know, centuries. And of course, nutraceuticals and pharma and, and pharmaceuticals as well. So we have that capacity to prescribe, but really looking at the whole person and meeting that patient where they're at. So that's something that I appreciate. The one thing that has surprised me though, in my journey is that naturopathic medicine in a way has become more allopathic. And let me explain what I mean by that is that in order to kind of align and get recognition from the allopathic community at large, I feel that we're moving more to the standard of care model and primary care. And standard of care is considered kind of the uh, guidelines that are recommended for treatment for every condition. And this is based on, you know, a hierarchy of evidence, typically, you know, evidence-based medicine and looking at, you know, randomized control trials, and then looking at, you know, the sum of all these randomized control trials and looking at systematic and meta-analysis, and then from there creating these guidelines to direct clinical decision-making. And while I believe strongly in evidence-based medicine and these guidelines, I still see them as guidelines and they're not absolute, they're not Bible, uh, but they can help direct clinicians in their decision-making. Now, you know, I think it's also important that we always are recognizing and, and meeting the individual. Some people seek out naturopathic providers or integrative health providers, functional medicine providers, because they don't want to band-aid symptoms. They don't want another pharmaceutical. They want to actually understand why this is happening and what they can do about it to either mitigate those symptoms and or reverse their condition. With that, you know, I found myself sometimes out of alignment because I feel like sometimes I'm practicing green allopathy where it's instead of a pill for every ill, uh, in terms of pharmaceutical, we may be giving an equivalent herb or an equivalent supplement for symptom management. And again, not adjusting the root cause. And I understand too, that with this new responsibility as primary care providers that we're held to a certain standard. And I think it's important to recognize that, but also 
I think it can impede our ability to think critically and really, you know, approach each patient holistically out of fear of backlash or going against standard of care and what our allopathic counterparts would prescribe for said condition or disease. So, you know, that's something that has opened my eyes and I hope that naturopathic medicine maintains its integrity to really its core values and it doesn't just kind of become washed out and some type of greenified, so to say, medical profession. So that's kind of been my experience with school so far. Gotcha. That's a pretty well-rounded perspective. And it's pretty cool that you're able to kind of even look out of your spectrum of naturopathic medicine to realize or recognize that it's not the end-all be-all per se in the sense that you can see that it's starting to trend a little bit towards allopathic model. And it's not a bad thing, but like you're alluding to, there's a lot of things that you got to take into consideration. Is it the right thing to do? Like you're saying, still keeping the whole body holistic mindset um, while still maintaining, like you said, those guidelines at the same time. So you kind of alluded to this with your you know, initial answer and introduction, but dig a little deeper into what your experience was during the pandemic being in medical school. I had many friends um, and their siblings who were in various types of med schools, and they had to deal with all kinds of stuff for maybe not being able to do some hospital rotations, which set them back for their hours, and maybe they're getting delayed graduation. And with my wife, she's in physical therapy school. So you can imagine a lot of her hands-on classes, well, now we're doing all of them through Zoom. So it really threw a kink into things for everyone around the world. But give us your perspective. What was it like going through med school uh, during the pandemic? It was really challenging. I mean, that's a great question. I know every person kind of dealt with the pandemic differently. And, you know, there was various aspects of my life that were really stable. Financial stability, you know, housing, and, you know, luckily family was well. And, you know, I don't have a a direct family member that has gotten COVID, but I realized that is not the reality for a lot of people. A lot of people lost everything. They lost loved ones, they lost their job and it really turned the world upside down. So in a way, I'm grateful that it was mild in a way, although it was challenging in this transition. And I think all transitions are challenging, right? And so really in a blink of an eye going from in-person and all of our clinical didactics and all the lectures and, and being in school, you know, 10 plus hours a day, Uh, to moving everything online and kind of being on a computer screen, it was difficult. And also at the same time too, when I think COVID, the message of needing to be isolated and socially isolated and distance from people, further perpetuating that by being kind of locked up in your place and kind of being glued to a screen and watching lectures for eight hours a day, and then doing all these assignments while also trying to do uh, rotations. And at the beginning of the pandemic, this was in my spring quarter. So like April to June, what they had created ended up doing for our kind of clinical experience prior to actually entering our last year of rotations is they created these online modules where other residents and attendings would present cases that they had seen, and we would basically complete them in an online format. And a lot of it was kind of short answer essay based, and you had to kind of back up your recommendations and in whatever you were you know, recommending with evidence. And so a part of it was kind of research. Part of it was also like seeing how you thought critically and your differentials and what kind of physical exams you do. The, the goal was to make those last like five hours. And I just remember dreading sitting in front of a computer and doing these assignments. I thought it was busy work and I'd much rather be seeing patients. And something that I definitely do feel shorthanded on is being able to practice all my physical exams, which are an important part of you know being a clinician you can only gather so much information in your your intake and your history um, I think it's really important. And then from there, you know, you'll want to actually conduct certain physical exams to rule in and rule out whatever diagnosis you're thinking uh, this person may have. And so 
you know, I have been in clinic as of September. So back in person, it was about six months that, you know, we were just kind of all online and virtual. And so just kind of getting adjusted to that and, you know, and adhering to, you know, all the personal protective equipment that we have to do. We have to wear goggles, we have to have a face shield, we have to have a mask and, you know, all the sterilization and stuff like that. But, you know, it's been a good learning experience. And, you know, I don't think this, this is going to be the last pandemic in my lifetime, I'm assuming. So to answer the question, it wasn't easy. And, you know, I still feel like there are pieces that I'm still training to gain in terms of clinical experience before I graduate, before I like actually start and work with clients, which I'm thinking probably like end of this year or beginning of 2022. Gotcha. Yeah. That sounds pretty, uh, resonates with what I've heard from a lot of other people, like my friends and like my wife, like you said, the hands-on was, was the most difficult. Like you're saying, you're losing that period of education where you're supposed to be getting the hands-on and for a lot of people, that's how they learn best. So, um, it's been difficult, but like you said, people have lost a lot more, so it could be worse. This podcast interview was brought to you by the Longev Revive Cream. If you haven't heard of this cream before, go back and listen to the podcast interview with David Horanek, one of the people that helped create this amazing cream. The cream was specifically developed to enhance red light therapy treatment sessions, and not only that, but improve vibrational healing from the frequencies of full spectrum sunlight. The Revive includes special ingredients such as photodynamic amino acids, which helps convert UV light to red light. It increases production of this thing called fibronectin, which is said to be the holy grail of anti-aging. And then there's astaxanthin, which has been shown in clinical studies to increase skin moisture, moisture retention, and elasticity. There's turmeric, which contains an antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and antimicrobial properties. There's copper peptides, which also has antioxidant, anti-inflammatory effects. C60 has high antioxidant power to prevent skin aging, 172 times more than vitamin C. And then there's also geranium rose, shungite, humic acids, and most of these ingredients are organic and they're all high, high quality. So if you want to check this cream out, go to longev.com, that's L-O-N-G-E-V-V.com, or you can also find it on biolite.shop, that's biolite.shop. Like you alluded to, it's a lot of screen time. It's a lot of time in front of these blue lit computers or tablets or whatever you're, you're viewing from. And they're long lectures and you have to do the assignments and you're probably indoors. Um, maybe you're getting some natural light, but probably not much. So with that being said, how much did you learn about light and its impact on health in your med school? Honestly, not a lot. Uh, that's a really great question. I have kind of dived down that rabbit hole on how important light is and how it really influences on, on the molecular and cellular level, our physiology at large. And, you know, we evolved with the sun and those different wavelengths of light that I think are so critical to optimize our health. You know, we have talked about circadian rhythm and we talk about how, you know, light and the timing of, you know, food intake and even exercise and, and social cues can influence the, those rhythms that we have within the body. But we didn't really apply it at large to how does this actually do implement this into maybe patient care? What are these recommendations other than just spouting out all this information around circadian rhythms and, and hormones and, and light? And yeah, I found that very difficult. So I kind of did my own research and reading on that. I kind of started with reading Dr. Sachin Panda's book, The Circadian Code, which was really eye-opening to me and have just really been fascinated by light. It's some, one of those things that 
I think we take for granted and we often vilify the sun in particular because of the prevalence of skin cancer and those UV rays that can be damaging to the skin. And also we live in this day and age and especially on social media where um, there's a certain aesthetic that is kind of expected of others, especially women. There's kind of these vanity pieces of it too. And sometimes it's like, well, while they're on the sunscreen, you don't want photo aging and, you know, spend minimal time outside, make sure to clothe, put all your clothes on. But, you know, we need those rays of light. And, you know, the sun is more important than just vitamin D, which we can talk about vitamin D. It's, you know, it's a, a pseudo hormone, but it is so, so, so important in so many aspects of regulating not only our gut health, but our immune health. It is just one of those things that I think we take for granted. And it's something that we need to kind of focus more on when we think about what are these foundational pillars for health? And we think about in naturopathic medicine and how do we approach health? It's really giving your body all of those basic building blocks, giving the body what it needs and remove those offending factors because we believe that the body has this innate capacity to heal. And that starts by getting back to the basics, reconnecting with nature and living in abidance by how mother nature intended us to be. When you're looking at clients or when you're working with clients um, in your rotations and as you go out into the practice in the real world, how do you assess someone for finding the root cause? And then is it based on the root cause that you put these different tiers? Maybe let's say they need to focus on food and then light and then sleep. Or um, how do you go through that process and and decide what each client or each patient requires to kind of move them down the track and optimize their health as quickly as possible? Yeah, that's a really great question. And there isn't one answer, to be honest. And I think that's what I like about this, the form of medicine that I'm in. I really have to think critically and again, meet each patient where they're at, because depending on, you know, if they're dealing with complex chronic illness or certain impediments or no, you know, they have a certain number of comorbid conditions that is going to influence what kind of treatment recommendations I'm also going to make. If they have insurance, maybe, I mean, there's people too that are here in Oregon and, you know, they're on um, OHP, which is Oregon health plan. And so some of these people don't even know what naturopathic medicine, it's just covered by their insurance. So they're coming to see us. They um, maybe aren't interested in a lot of the lifestyle changes or herbs or supplements. They just want the pharmaceutical because it's what their insurance is going to cover. There's other people that come in and they don't have insurance. So again, thinking about financial restrictions and those obstacles to actually treating the patient and again, meeting them where they're at. So with all of that, you know, I think about what are those basics? Light should be a basic pillar. It's something that is not really focused on though in naturopathic medicine. I would say a lot of our pillars to health that we focus on are diet and nutrition and really looking at how we can secure more financial resources for food because there is food insecurity and and scarcity in some of our populations that we see where they can't even access healthy foods, you know, let alone fruits, vegetables, or organic or whatever that may be. And so, you know, they depend on food stamps or they go to food banks. So, you know, that's something that I'm cognizant of, uh, that not everybody has the same resources. We think about sleep, sleep being one of those pillars to health that I think I like to think of it as free and that everybody can really utilize and, and prioritize. But a lot of us, we don't prioritize our sleep and that time that we need to rest. Um, and sleep plays so many important roles in terms of our physiological health, our cognitive health, and the aging process. And so, you know, focus on sleep, focus on diet, as we talked about movement and exercise, I kind of even like to talk about it more is just moving the body doesn't have to be these high intensity, you know, weight resistant type of exercises or Pilates or yoga, which can be an impediment because of the costs. They're great, but just moving the body, getting outside, getting fresh air, 
and stress reduction. I think that's another really big one this day and age when, you know, we have, you know, technology at our fingertips and it can be overwhelming. And just thinking about how much we add on our plate. I'm a very type A person. I don't know about yourself. And just sometimes we just load so much on our plate and, you know, finding a good balance to make time to do things that we enjoy and that we are giving ourselves permission to recharge and to slow down, which can be hard. But, you know, I really see that as a core pillar to, good health. And then the last one I'd say is community. And, um, you know, that one I think is often overlooked. Um, social isolation is something that is so prevalent this day and age and something that I have noticed too over the pandemic is there's no other referral I've made more than to psychiatry the, over the past year. Um, and in the state of Oregon, I mean, they're booked out six to eight months because of the impact that this pandemic has had on people's mental health. So connection, I think it's so important. You think about the blue zones. So these are areas around the world where people live the longest and they have the highest densely populated people of centenarians. I think the, the main thing, there can be a bunch of things, but the main thing that unites all blue zones is the sense of purpose and community. I really think that's a uniting factor. And I think it's something that clinicians should be aware of when they're working with patients. And while we are treating the individual, thinking about their social environment as well. Like you're saying with community, it's so underappreciated and undervalued, yet it plays such an impactful role. So how would you get, let's say your patient to integrate that more into their life if they're if you see that they're lacking that. Yeah, I would want to know what is it that they enjoy to do? What brings them joy? What kind of do they like to do in terms of hobbies? And kind of thinking about what are some of these things that they can do with other like-minded people because when you're in a in a space with other like-minded people around a a common activity that you both enjoy, it makes it easier to spark conversation and to kind of find those natural communities and and people that, you know, are in your same camp and, and really want to champion you. So that's something I kind of think about, you know, asking about what is their occupation? What do they like to do? If you're not working, what do you like to do in your free time or on your downtime? What does that look like? Do you have a support system? Do you, you know, I hear you've been struggling and uh, this time has been really difficult for you. Uh, do you have anybody that you trust and that you can turn to during these difficult times and confide in? That's something really important for me too. And if not, then let's maybe even get, start them with, you know, counseling. Let's get them a counselor, somebody that will hear them. And I think, you know, holding space for people and patients, um, I think can be just as healing as actually providing recommendations for tangible health. Because I think so many people, oftentimes they don't feel heard and they're kind of punted from provider to provider. They don't have time. You know, maybe the provider doesn't care. I hate to say that, but you know, there's different doctors that are willing to sit with a patient and listen to them and advocate for them. And there's others that don't have that time for other patients. And so, you know, I'm just realizing that just holding space for a patient and really hearing them and what their needs are can be so healing and also establishing that doctor-patient relationship. I love that approach. In that, um, I can corroborate with that last sentiment you're saying as far as people just want to be heard. And I find that even as a physical therapist, they're coming in to get you know different pains or aches or body parts treated, but it's a lot about just conversing and talking and building that rapport. And like you said, people just want to be heard. A lot of the complaints have nothing to do with their body or physical therapy, but they just want to vent. They just want to get it off their chest and they want someone to talk to. So like you said, sometimes that's even a more valuable part of the healing process than the actual treatment itself. So I love that you're taking that approach and I'm sure your patients will greatly benefit from that approach. So let's, let's go into sleep a little bit. You've mentioned this a couple of times, sleep and kind of optimizing your circadian rhythm. So what have you learned in school? What do you apply with yourself and how do you yourself and with your patients, would you like to see people optimizing their sleep, sleep environment, circadian rhythm, 
et cetera? Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a big topic, but I think it's one of those things that as naturopathic doctors, we're well equipped to talk about sleep and how many people think about how many people have some type of sleep disorder. I think about when somebody comes to see me, maybe they're coming in with a chief complaint of cough, or maybe they're coming in with um, dysuria. So like painful urination, or they're coming in with fatigue and how many people also in passing mention that, oh yeah, my sleep sucks and I don't sleep well. And, you know, the CDC states that about 35% of adults don't get the minimum recommended amount of sleep each night. And so for adults, we need a minimum of seven hours per night. And then again, this is where, you know, depending on the individual, some people can operate fine on seven hours. Other people need about seven hours or nine hours of sleep. So again, that's where it's, you know, more individualized, but sleep is critical. Like I, I kind of alluded to earlier for so many physiological processes and it plays a restorative function and it aids in bodily repair. If you think about like athletic performance and it replenishes energy supplies and um, it helps to consolidate memory and even remove metabolic byproducts when we sleep, especially in deep sleep. So there's, you know, two main types of sleep. There's deep sleep, which is kind of that more restorative sleep. And it's when our brain actually clears cellular debris via the glymphatic system. And we have the greatest rate of protein synthesis. So this is great. If you want like muscle repair, you think about athletic performance. It's also when growth hormone and testosterone are uh, secreted at its peak. So, you know, sleep is so important for, again, that recovery place and anabolism. So building that body up more REM sleep is another phase of sleep that is typically in the latter part of the sleep cycle. And that is important for brain maturation and consolidating short-term memories. And it also helps us to process emotionally charged events. And so we know that individuals that um, maybe have gone through a breakup and they haven't maybe gotten over that because it's still fresh and that wound is, is raw, uh, that that person uh, really needs REM sleep. And when they're deprived of that REM sleep, it's harder for them to overcome and process that emotionally charged event. So I will say that both stages of sleep are essential and that, you know, there's so many people that come in and again, saying like they have struggles with sleep and we can kind of talk about like, well, this is why we should sleep. And sometimes people just need to hear, they need to get the buy-in of like, sleep is important. And this is why it's important. And you're hearing it from a doctor and then it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. I should really start prioritizing sleep. But for people that can't sleep because there are so many sleep disorders, you know, this is where we're probably referring out to a sleep specialist. And we're doing a sleep study uh, because someone may have obstructive sleep apnea or they have insomnia or some other type of sleep disorder. And so you know, this is where we can really spend a lot of time with our patients. And some of it too, I'm talking about like sleep hygiene starts with the circadian rhythm, which we talked about earlier. So circadian rhythm, just kind of like a brief overview of that. It's really governed by this structure in the center of our brain. It's called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, and it receives input from our external environment. So light being one of those things that we've talked about, the timing of food and exercise. And we are diurnal creatures. So these light and dark cycles really influence our circadian rhythm and our circadian rhythm influences our metabolism. It influences hormone synthesis and secretion, our body temperature, our autonomic nervous system function, and so much more. And so the best way I like to describe our circadian rhythm are like how do you know if your, your circadian rhythm is out of alignment? Uh, jet lag disorder, you know, or a shift work disorder. So if you're a shift worker, when you uh, go to a different time zone or you're sleeping out of alignment with those natural diurnal rhythms and you feel groggy and you feel tired and, you know, you don't have really a consistent wake sleep cycle, that is really kind of being out of alignment with those circadian rhythms. And one of the best ways to optimize our circadian rhythm is routine. As humans, we are creatures of habits and we love routine. Routine also reinforces safety for us, which is so important, kind of that primitive aspect 
aspect of the brain that we are safe. And when we're in these routines, it's familiar. And because it's familiar, we know it's safe. And so, you know, one of the first things you can do really is to eat meals at the same time every day, whether that's breakfast, lunch, and dinner, because the body kind of picks up on these routines getting full spectrum light exposure first thing in the morning, a good 20 minutes within the first 90 minutes upon waking is so, so, so important to optimize our uh, circadian rhythm and, and optimal outputs of cortisol, which is kind of this alpha hormone that I like to think about is kind of like, it gets us up and going in that kind of fight or flight. Um, but we need it for our cortisol awakening response in the morning. And so again, light timing of the food that we eat and really, you know, trying to get periodic sun exposure throughout the day and not just being indoors all day, which has been difficult, obviously, with kind of being indoors and having all this work on our computer. So, I mean, there's a lot you can do. And just with some of those simple things, the light exposure, getting bursts of light throughout the day, routine meals, getting up at the same time every day, those can all really, really help to optimize your circadian rhythm. So I know it was like a long answer, but just know that those things can be absolutely instrumental in getting a good sleep hygiene pattern, but again, also optimizing our energy and hormone secretions. Yeah. And that's a well-rounded answer. And like everything you just pointed out, sun exposure, especially in the morning. Uh, so kind of like sun gazing, right? Getting that free red and near infrared light. Um, I do it personally with grounding. So I have my shoes off in the yes. grass. So the best of both worlds. But then, so we have sunlight exposure throughout the day, timing of meals. Was there another one? Getting up at the same time every day is more important than kind of going to bed at the same time every day. So the morning is what we really know is going to really be the biggest driver influencing our circadian rhythm. Gotcha. And that's beautiful. And I guess my point was all those are free. It's just mm -hmm. a matter of, like you said, building the habit and instilling those on a daily basis. But to the last point, you're saying wake up at the same time every morning. What about with the seasonal change? Or if you live in a state where you have daylight savings, what do you do then? Because uh, right now the sun's getting up here like at, I don't know, 4.45 or 5. Am I supposed to still, let's say my wake up time is 7 because in the winter the sun doesn't come up to like 8, but now it comes up at 4.45 or 5. Do I still wake up at the same time every morning? Yeah, that's a great question. And we're both so far north that, yeah, like during the summer, I think the sun's rising at like 520 here right now. And then it sets at like 930. And then yeah, in the winter, like the sun won't rise until like 8am, right? So it's very different. And so, you know, really adopting those changes in the season, I think is important. And so I will also argue too that, you know, if you look at kind of like ancestral heritage and kind of like where we kind of grew up as like a civilization, like before industrialization and, and having lights and stuff like that is many people lived closer to the equator. And when you're closer to the equator, you have more routine cycles in terms of when the sun is rising and when it's setting, as opposed to the farther north or the farther south you go, the longer and or shorter days you have. Now, in terms of tools and stuff that people can use, so like something like in the winter, what I will do is that I will use therapeutic light. These are like light block boxes and using therapeutic light to help to phase shift my circadian rhythm and when I am getting up. So that can be helpful to kind of get up at, the, at a certain time throughout the day. And so like, let's say in the winter, you still want to get up at six every day, as opposed to eight when the sun rises, you can use light to kind of influence and kind of wake you up earlier. And then in the evening, kind of putting on, if, if the light's still out, putting on blue light blocking glasses, which are going to uh, block out that spectrum of light, typically blue light, some green light that can send external signals through the back of the retina to the brain that it's still light out and to suppress a hormone called melatonin. And melatonin works in opposition of 
cortisol, cortisol kind of being secreted highest in the morning and telling our body, let's get up and go energy, stamina. We're going to take on the day in the evening. Cortisol should be lowest because we're winding down and we shouldn't be so active, right? We're getting ready for bed. And at the same time in the evening, melatonin should rise. So melatonin is going to be highest in the evening. It should be lowest in the morning and melatonin helps with sleep latency. And so it doesn't necessarily put us to sleep, but again, I kind of gets us ready for bed and to kind of like slow things down. And so again, light can be a big input to help to influence these with one, the therapeutic light I was talking about in the mornings to kind of phase shift or two, using blue light blocking glasses in the evening when it maybe is still light out at 9 PM, but you want it to be dark at eight. So you can put those blue light blocking glasses on to block out any type of artificial blue light uh, and kind of support your own endogenous, meaning built in inside the body melatonin production. Did I answer your question with that? Absolutely. Very thoroughly. Okay. <laughs> and kind of to your point about light, especially the blue light, raising cortisol level, levels, uh, inhibiting melatonin. I've posted this a couple of times on Instagram uh, through the BioLight page, but this one piece of research showed that like green and purple and blue, they all inhibit melatonin production, whereas red light does not. It doesn't necessarily increase melatonin production, but it doesn't um, inhibit it. So that's why a lot of people find that using red light therapy at night is very therapeutic and can help them kind of normalize their circadian rhythm. So I don't know if you do that as well, or if you've had any you know, anecdotal experience with, with yourself or patients uh, utilizing red light therapy for circadian rhythm or optimizing sleep. Yeah, that's a great question. So do you typically do, I'm curious, do you do red light typically in the evening as opposed to morning, or do you do both? I typically do the evening just based on my routine. It seems to work for me. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Some people find red light therapy stimulating because you're recharging your mitochondria. And on the flip side, some people find it very relaxing, almost sedating. So you need to find as a person, if you're trying red light therapy, which one are you? And maybe you're both. That just depends on the time of the day. But you need to know going into it that if you use red light therapy before sleep, it may be stimulating. So that's just something you have to figure out, and which is kind of why I was asking you what your experience has been. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up that point because for me, it is more stimulating. So I love to do red light therapy upon waking. So um, when I wake up, one of the first things I do is I drink a glass of structured water and then I'm basically, you know, charging my mitochondria by stepping in front of the red light panel for typically 12 minutes. And so um, I do it in the morning and I don't do it as often in the evening because again, it is kind of stimulating, but maybe I had a, a long day and I have been kind of dragging and I maybe had a workout and I kind of feel sore. So I'm like, oh, I'll do like five minutes of red light therapy, that kind of thing like that. But, you know, you, you mentioned red light. So, you know, you can do red light therapy with these panels like BioLight, just awesome. And, you know, where you, but where are you going to find red light actually out in the environment? Because I think a lot of people too is like, do we need these fancy devices in order to get red light? And so you can't, when you're going to see red light is typically with the rising sun and at sunset. So red light is coming from, it's non-refracted light as opposed to when the sun is up in the air and you're getting all this blue light, that's refracted light. And so the red light is, you know, and, and at sundown and, and sunrise, you don't have these harsh UV rays either. And so that red light can actually be, I almost kind of think of it as like a, a solar callus. It, it, it not only sends input in through the retina to the brain to kind of tell your body what time of day it is to influence sleep and influence our hormone production and again, energy, but also when the skin is, is bathed in that red light, 
in a way it kind of primes the body for the light that it's going to be receiving later on in the day, especially in the morning when you're catching the morning rays and the sunrise. And I think it could be a novel way of kind of offsetting sunburn. And there's many different things that can, you know, uh, account for a sunburn. And so, you know, it depends on obviously your skin type. There's also a bunch of metabolic factors. If you have diabetes and the certain fats that are in your diet, that then get integrated into your cell membranes and oxidative stress, which red light is going to help offset oxidative stress. It's going to help offset that inflammation and the mitochondrial dysfunction, which, you know, red light is really going to support. So, you know, just getting red light with sun, sunrise and sunset, not only again, are you going to get all those benefits we were talking about, but that routine piece we were talking about seeing so important. So if it's, you know, routine where it's like, I'm going to see the sunrise or get up at the sunrise, or I'm going to go to bed after I see the sunset, like your body likes those rhythms and it likes that routine. So, I mean, the, there's a lot of great benefits to red light therapy. And again, it kind of being anti-inflammatory. And I mean, I know you've talked about this uh, Dr. Mike about all the different benefits for red light, but I find it, you know, the anti-inflammatory, the skin health benefits, the improvements in active athletic performance and oxygenation and eye health and so many other things. I'm absolutely loving your, your protocol book that you created and something I reference all the time, but to kind of answer also that other question of like, can you get all the benefits of red light by just catching the sunrise and sunset? I would say, I don't know. It depends too how much you know, of your skin you're exposing, but also when you do use like a red light panel, you're getting very concentrated red light with again, the near infrared and those infrared, those different wavelengths are going to penetrate deeper, you know, from the epidermis to the dermis and kind of sub Q. So um, those are all factors to consider. Yeah. And to your point, does a person need a red light therapy panel? Well, in this day and age, I mean, I think you could argue more so yes than not, unless you're a person who's constantly outside, constantly getting sun exposure that's the only reason why red light therapy is even a thing or a product is because we're so mal-illuminated, we're so deficient in red and near-infrared light. If we weren't, these products wouldn't even exist because no one would buy them. But to your point, we're so deficient, our mitochondria are becoming dysfunctional, which is a root to a lot of these chronic diseases and cancers and illnesses that we're seeing today that we didn't see uh, 50, 60, 70, 100 years ago. But with technology, we're more inside, we're less outside. We're deficient in these red and near infrared light. But I want to kind of backpedal just a moment back to sleep because I like asking this question to a lot of different people. With melatonin, what is your opinion on supplementing with it? I've heard both sides of the story because it's an endogenously produced substrate. So would you worry that someone that's constantly supplementing with melatonin is going to wreck that uh, feedback loop in, in that part of their biology? Or are you all right with them using melatonin on a consistent basis, or do you have a different theory? Yeah. I mean, that's a really great question. I will say that in naturopathic medical school, I've learned both and both theories, so to say, I've heard people talking about that there is no feedback loop. So taking exogenous melatonin in terms of supplement form does not interfere with our own natural production. And then on the other hand, I've heard other people say that, um, you know, if you do take melatonin, well, then your body's going to see, oh, there's, you know, we're super saturated with melatonin. We have more melatonin. So the body's going to, you know, suppress and shut down actually making, making melatonin. And so here's the thing with melatonin is that I think, again, it comes back to the individual too. Melatonin is, it's a powerful antioxidant. It's anti-inflammatory. You're talking about cancer earlier. And we know that like night shift workers are more higher risk for cancer because melatonin is also an anti-tumor compound. And if you're not getting you know sufficient amounts of melatonin, then that can open the floodgates to tumorogenesis. And so with melatonin, our body, if you think about how much we're actually making like physiological doses of melatonin, like how much are we actually secreting? 
you know, something recently that I've looked into, there's a body of literature saying that we secrete anywhere from 0.3 to 1 milligram of melatonin, which is not that much. You think about some of the melatonin products on the market, they can be anywhere from 1 milligram, 5 milligrams, 10 milligrams, and 20 milligrams. Typically, these larger doses, 10, 20 milligrams, these are used more as adjunctive treatment in cancer because we want it for the anti-cancer and antioxidant components uh, of melatonin. So I think people can overdo the melatonin, that's for sure. I would start with supporting your own built-in ability to make melatonin. I think start there first, right? And so I'm not against melatonin. I think it can be beneficial, but if you are out of alignment with, you know, these diurnal rhythms and out of alignment with nature and the way that mother nature intended us to, to be kind of more aligned with these, with these rhythms. Well, I don't think melatonin is going to, I mean, it can help if you're like a shift worker, let's say, but it's kind of like, um, you know, someone trying to take a supplement when they have a horrible diet and they don't exercise, you can't supplement your way out of a, you know, a poor lifestyle. And so let's address getting your body to produce melatonin. Yes, we can use melatonin to, to augment that in the meantime, but let's think about how much we're using, maybe not using as much. We can do like a pulse dose, maybe using it for a period of time, as opposed to something that people become dependent on and they need every single night. So again, start with supporting the body's own production using exogenous forms of melatonin can help. Um, some people don't get a lot of relief from it too. So kind of, if you get benefit, great. If you don't, maybe it's not right for you. And then consider the dose. I think a lot of people are doing too much melatonin, whether that's five milligrams or 10 milligrams, and they're waking up feeling more groggy and tired because you can have what is kind of called a melatonin hangover. You know, that's something that can happen to you when you're taking too much melatonin. I've had people come in they're like, I'm so tired in the morning and it takes me like two to three hours to get up and I feel groggy. And it's like, okay, what supplements are you taking or what medications? And they're taking five or 10 milligrams of melatonin. It's like, well, no wonder. And they're also having like, you know, very vivid dreams and their stomach's upset and they're having headaches. And it's like, well, let's taper down on that dose of melatonin. Everything improves. So it can be beneficial to kind of answer your question. And again, I think it's a toss. It's kind of one of those things that, you know, it depends on the individual, but in terms of your original question, I'm not quite sure what the right answer is. If it does suppress our endogenous production of melatonin, do you know? I'm not aware and I haven't really looked specifically in the research, but I was just curious what you had learned in school. Yeah, we've, we've learned both. So. <laughs> so there you go. Well, that's a good reminder about its anti, um, antioxidant, anti-tumor properties and uh, the fact that more is not better because uh, th- we get into this mindset where more is better, right? Whether it's lifting weights or, or fasting or uh, supplements. So I think it's a good reminder, just like red light therapy, more is not better. There's this biphasic dose response where you want to hit the sweet spot, but you, you don't want the dosage to be too low, but of course you don't want it to be too high as well. So that's a good reminder. Let's quickly talk about one of your passions, clinical nutrition and digestive health, because I imagine this is huge in the, in the naturopathic world. So give us a breakdown of what it is and how you utilize it with your patients. Yeah. I mean, I think food is foundational. It's one of those foundational pillars we were talking about. And I think of all of those different pillars, it is one of the most impactful. Unfortunately, I don't think it's the end all be all, but so many people are undernourished. When we think about food, there's more to food than just nourishment. I totally understand that. You know, there's a lot of communion around it. There's, you know, social ties around food. It is also, there's emotional ties to food as well. Um, we're looking for that kind of, um, to, to ping that dopamine reward response as well and eating, you know, more fast sugary foods um, that are, are going to make us feel comforted. And so, 
you know, here's the thing though, is this day and age with, you know, the use of pesticides and pharmaceutical drugs, our um, monoculture type of agricultural practices, and, um, you know, a lot of minerals being removed from our municipal water supply, the stress that we're under, all of these things really deplete us of nourishment, mainly minerals. And so I see so many people that are just undernourished and these micronutrients that we find in food prior to the industrial revolution, we ate, it was a form of survival. It was to create energy, but in this food, you know, it was really to nourish. And I really believe in this aspect of nourishment where we're getting these micronutrients, which are vitamins and minerals that we find in food and food-like products. And our body uses them and assimilates those nutrients to run thousands of enzymatic reactions in the body that carry out all of these physiological processes in the body that we take for granted. And if you don't give your body the necessary nourishment that it needs, it is going to work suboptimally because it utilizes these, co these, these vitamins and minerals as cofactors, again, to run the machinery in your body. So I think that's where, you know, supplementation can be beneficial, why people even benefit from a multivitamin, but ultimately we should be starting by getting this from food first because food works in synergy and it has all these other compounds, phytochemicals and fiber. And again, all your macros, your fats, proteins, and carbs and sterols and all these other things that work best when you eat them as a whole, as opposed to, you know, isolating and supplementing with these foods. And so, you know, for some people just cleaning up their diet and really focusing on more nourishing, whole, some nutrient dense food can be a game changer for their energy, for their sleep, for chronic inflammation, for uh, skin issues, for, um, you know, poor immune health and kind of having this picture of chronically getting sick and perpetually sick. So, you know, food really does matter. And I love that it is something that we really focus on in naturopathic medicine, because in our kind of our allopathic counterpart, they get upwards of, you know, eight to 24 hours of nutrition education, depending on what school they go to. So not a lot where, you know, we all have to eat to survive and food is something that we all have to do, right? We don't all have to bathe in red light therapy. I mean, I love it, but you know, it's not, if we don't eat, we, we die. Same kind of thing with water, right? Like we all need shelter. We need food. We need water and we need some type of community as well. You know, social isolation will also kill you uh, slowly, not, not acutely, but you know, those are just kind of one of the things that I was thinking about. And so when you think about the gut health piece too, and digestion, you could eat all the best foods. And I have this conversation with a lot of people and they're like, you know, I eat clean. I eat paleo. I eat whole 30, whatever that is. Or I, I eat a, um, whole food plant-based diet and they're taking all these supplements, but their digestion is a wreck. They're constantly bloated. They're constipated. They have reflux and indigestion. And so, you know, my line of thought is, are they able to actually break down the food they're consuming and can they actually absorb it? Because you often hear this term, you are what you eat. And while that is true in a way, I would argue that it's not what you eat, but it's what you digest, absorb and assimilate because you can't digest it and absorb it and assimilate and utilize those nutrients. It really does your body no good what you're eating. That's a good point. Question I wanted to ask you, and you almost kind of alluded to it, kind of answered it is, I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Jack Cruz and his work. He's pretty hell-bent on people getting optimal light and making that a foundation of their health. And he goes as far as to say, light is more important than food. He's gone to conferences. He's Western A. Price, this, that, and the other. And he's very vehement that if you're not optimizing your environment for light, and whether it's inside or obviously outside with full spectrum light, that you shouldn't even be worrying about food. You shouldn't be worrying about supplements because light, which does power and optimize the health of the mitochondria, which you can argue plays a massive role in your overall health and longevity. He would argue that, again, 
nutrition and food is not nearly as important as light. The way he puts it is, would you worry about taking care of your Ferrari's engine or would you worry about the type of fuel you're putting into it? So his point being the engine, being the mitochondria, take care of your mitochondria first, then worry about nutrition. What are your thoughts on that? I love that analogy. I've never thought of it that way. I am familiar with Dr. Cruz's work. And, you know, just kind of thinking through what you had to say and kind of like trying to rationalize what you were saying and my thoughts on that. So you think about when you talk about metabolism, metabolism is really just kind of in a simplistic way of we take the food that we eat, the sustenance, the, the, the macros, those calories, and we break that food down into energy. And that energy is made in the mitochondria. So when we absorb those nutrients, they're broken down, they're shuttled into the cells, they go into the mitochondria, they go through that electron transport chain, or they go through the, the citric acid cycle to the mitochondria through the electron transport chain. And that's how we make energy. And we're burning oxygen to make energy and water. And so if you don't have properly functioning mitochondria, well, your metabolism is going to be impaired. You're not able to as efficiently break down the food that you're consuming and make energy. And then couple that with, you know, metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, and all these other things too, you know, that all adds up. So I, I see that, you know, I really like that point. And I kind of see it coming back to this piece of the need to establish those good foundations for health and light being one of those things that powers the mitochondria because those mitochondria have those chromophores uh, that can absorb wavelengths of light. I think making sure that we're getting adequate sun exposure is important. And I think it also kind of just alludes back to something that I had mentioned previously at the beginning of this podcast is that we are so out of alignment from how mother nature intended us to live. And the further divorce we are from nature, the more that disease persists. And, and this world that we live in with all of these luxuries and having indoor you know, lighting and technology and food at our fingertips at any time and alcohol, it's disrupting our circadian rhythm. It's disrupting our biology. It's disrupting our mitochondria and our metabolism, and it's disrupting our sleep. So again, it's interfering with all of these foundations to good health that we were kind of talking about in terms of those pillars. So I do believe in what Dr. Cruz was saying, and I really do like that analogy that you mentioned. It really resonated with me. Yeah. And that's not to be myopic, like light is the end all be all. It's a holistic approach. It's very multifactorial. Uh, but I think Jack Cruz is just trying to drive home his point of how important light is because it's very easily dismissed or underappreciated. But yeah, I, I like the point you bring about, of course, all the food you eat, hopefully gets broken down to electrons, goes through that transport chain and becomes energy just like light does less efficiently than light. Another thing Jack Cruz says is that if you get enough sun exposure, you can actually eat less because you're taking in more electrons. Same thing with grounding. But grounding in sunlight, if you're getting enough of those and then structured water, which you talked about a little earlier, those are electrons. Those are free electrons. And that's what our body runs on. And that's energy. And so the more energy you have per cell, the more energy you have per tissue and organ, the healthier you're going to be overall. So while it's a little hyperbolic, I think it's just a good reminder of how important light is. And on that note of structured water, because you mentioned it, I'm curious, how do you structure your water? So I just got into structured water probably six weeks ago. So very recently. And uh, Gerald Pollack, I've looked into some of his work. He wrote the fourth phase of water and is kind of really big on structured water. And I am by no way an expert on it, but my limited exposure to looking into this, and, and it makes sense to me is that on one end, when it comes to water, that a lot of the water that is clean through the municipal water supply is not really removing enough. And so you have, you know, 
pharmaceutical metabolites in our tap water, you have chlorine, you have fluoride, you have, which are used as disinfectants. And then you have herbicides and pesticides that are water soluble that kind of end up in there too, because we're not removing everything. And then it's kind of running through these PVC pipes uh, in terms of water and, you know, actually how we actually get water to the tap um, and thinking about how heat can leach all these phthalates and other plasticizers. And we're just drinking this soup of chemicals. And even in, in Portland, Giardia is in our water. And so that's something that has shown up too. And so I think even more important, so Giardia being, you know, one of those, those parasites. And so I filter my water. I think it's so, so, so important to kind of help to, to clean the water. If you're thinking about the purity of water and I use a reverse osmosis filter and reverse osmosis filter removes everything. It's also removing the minerals, which you want minerals because it's going to provide charge and you want that charge to better utilize and absorb the water that you're drinking. But when it goes through a reverse osmosis filter in a way, it, it's essentially flat, it's flat water, it's dead water. And yes, it doesn't have any impurities and you can add minerals back in for the charge and getting those minerals that, you know, we use to, you know, to create energy. And it's literally like the electrical circuit that, you know, kind of helps our body operate and run. So then the next piece is the, the structuring component. So I use a, um, it's actually right here, a little small portable one. It's called Natural Action Technologies. It's real small. I have no affiliation, by the way. And I've seen other people have like these larger structuring water um, machines that can be a couple thousand dollars. And I wasn't ready to make a big investment yet. I was like, I want to see how this works. And, you know, most people that talk about structured water, it's creating more 3D helical structure to the water and or crystalline structure, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. But again, it allows for better absorption of the water. And so we can actually absorb and utilize that water as opposed to that water just sitting in our gut. And not actually absorbing that water and it allows for better hydration so we're not so dehydrated and that our body can actually utilize the water because water is that cofactor that is used in all these different enzymatic and biochemical reactions in the body i mean we know it's important for all these different reasons but you know it's like drink more water but what is the quality of your water i think it's so important to consider so i have noticed though that since drinking using this this water structuring device i mean this was about 250 bucks so it was on the cheaper end and i'll just you know take the water out of my reverse osmosis filter and go through here that i feel like i need to drink less water i feel like my thirst is quenched and i'm not always thirsty and it doesn't sit in my my stomach so i'm a fan so far but it's something it's a it's an area of work that I want to look a lot more into. That's interesting. So it's almost like quality versus quantity as far as the water intake you have now with, with that device. Yeah. I mean, if you think about food too, I think about quality over quantity too. And you think about, you know, how we break down food too, in terms of like carbohydrates and breaking that down into pyruvate and glucose versus like burning fat and ketones and stuff like that the amount of oxidative stress that comes out of, you know, making energy from the mitochondria. Oxidative stress is a normal byproduct, but burning carbohydrates in a way is dirtier energy. If you want to kind of say it like that, where it's going to actually produce more oxidative stress, it's a normal byproduct of cellular metabolism, but that's why also, you know, antioxidants in the diet and, you know, fasting and all these other things can help to mitigate a lot of those free radicals that can create that oxidative stress. So yeah, that was just uh, something that I've recently implemented. You know, if somebody is not even drinking water, we got to start there just to drink water before kind of inundating them with like, oh, add minerals, add hydrogen tablets, structure your water and all stuff like that. So yeah, I'm learning more about that. Totally. And you can actually structure your water with a near infrared light, well, red and near infrared, but 
Um, I don't know if you read this in um, Gerald Pollock's book, The Fourth Phase of Water, like you mentioned, but I think it was near the end. He was saying that if you get the water exposed, red is better than the rest of the colors as far as structuring the water, but near infrared is even better than red. And the higher the intensity, the better. And the longer that you expose it, the better, the more you're going to structure the water. So that's mm. also something you could tinker out around with, with uh, your structured water is you could structure it. But I don't know what order would be better structuring it with red light therapy first and then through your device or device and then red light therapy. I think I would do red light therapy first, but that'd be some, uh, another way to make the water wetter, I guess is another way to say structured water. Yeah. Wetter. I like that. I'll have to try that. I've also heard you could leave it out in the sun, but I don't know how, you know, the, the blue wavelengths of light and the UV, what that does to light. I mean, I know people will use UV rays as kind of like anti, uh, for antibacterial, uh, antimicrobial purposes, but yeah, I've heard you can also leave it out in the sun and like a glass container, not plastic. Um, and that can also, Definitely. I think leaving it out in the sun is therapeutic because then you're getting the full spectrum, but I think specific to structuring the water at least again, according to Dr. Pollock, you want the near infrared specifically. So to superdose it, I think it would behoove a person to use a device, but of course use the sun. It's free and, and it's going to make the water healthier. Yeah. Use the sun. And then one other thing I'll say is, you know, fruits and vegetables, those are naturally structured water, the way that the water is compacted and structured in those fruits and vegetables. So, you know, eat your water, um, I think is another thing too. And I think I'm, I've always been a fan of smoothies. My body does so well with smoothies and I've been doing smoothies every morning for like five years. And I think one is it's easy to digest and kind of being this type A person that's always doing so much running, you know, from clinic to school to all the stuff like that. It is pre-digested. So I don't have to spend as much energy to, to break it down, but also it's very hydrating and I'm getting all the fruits and vegetables and water that's easily absorbed. So I could see that also being a reason why I think I've responded so well to smoothies in the past. That's a great point. Eat your structured water. But let's finish up with some shop talk on red light therapy specifically. So I know we've been uh, connected for a little over a year now, but how did you initially learn about red light therapy? And secondly, if you've had time <laughs> during your busy schedule, what in the photobiomodulation research stands out to you the most? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think, well, you know, to be honest, how I found out about red light therapy, I think it was one of those trendy things that all these biohackers were doing. And I was just like, I want to be like these people. I want optimal health and I want super physiological health. And this is one of those things. And I'll have to say red light therapy is probably top two, one of my favorite, you know, biohacking devices, if you call it that. You can also get red light by kind of getting up at the rising sun and, and also at sunset, right? So, you know, it is there in nature because I know a lot of people are like, well, how would you actually be exposed to red light in, in another way? So, yeah, it was really kind of just through influencer marketing and seeing all these other big names utilizing it. And again, kind of this desire for optimal health as well as athletic performance. I was an athlete. I was a competitive swimmer, division one level um, for 15 years and, and swam uh, post-grad as well. And um, always looking for ways to optimize my health. And I think that's kind of where all this started with kind of this path to naturopathic medical school, understanding my health, my body, and all of the factors that are necessary to fuel my body to success and performance. And so red light being another one of those adjunctive tools um, for recovery and oxygenation and that's anti-inflammatory benefits, but who also doesn't love good skin? I think I was definitely drawn to the, the benefits of, you know, red light and its superficial benefits for, you know, um, atopic dermatitis and, and acne and psoriasis and any other type of chronic kind of inflammatory skin condition. 
you know, I started with kind of just one of those handheld ones for the, the face and then transitioned to a, a full body panel. I remember when we had initially talked and, and started, started this is that I wanted to try a protocol that, um, you know, some people had talked about the benefits, but maybe not as well established in the literature and, or it was more in animal-based models and kind of very elementary. And so one of the things that was intriguing to me was how, you know, red light therapy can enhance testosterone levels. And as men, men, a lot of times want to optimize their testosterone. Uh, Some people will go as far as, you know, using anabolic steroids and looking at other ways to supplement with testosterone exogenously because testosterone can help increase energy and stamina. It helps to build lean muscle mass and reduce adiposity. Um, I mean, who doesn't want that? <laughs> uh, it also increases libido. And again, it's anti-inflammatory. So I set to do a little experiment over three months where I was, I did red light with near infrared directly on my testes. It was really full body, but I made sure to get my scrotum right in front about like six inches away. And I did that for eight minutes for three months. And what really surprised me through this end of one experience um, is that my total testosterone levels jumped from 607, which is like, it's okay, uh, up to 808, um, which is the upper limit of normal. And my free testosterone went from 71.2 up to basically hundred. It was 98.7. So um, that was pretty significant. And so, you know, and I have to say that I did notice a change in my libido and um, sexual function from that too. Um, I also noticed that I felt like I had better stamina and that with the workouts that I was doing, I was able to sustain that energy. And so, you know, it got me to looking into more into why red light and how does red light actually work on a more cellular and molecular level, kind of coming from that background of um, my undergrad was in cell and molecular biology. So it's like, how is this working? How could this actually help? Why would it increase your, your testosterone levels? So I kind of went down that rabbit hole. Were you doing anything else during your three-month experiment with red light therapy and testosterone to help improve testosterone levels? Or were you only changing the red light therapy protocol in your daily life? The only thing I can think of that I changed during that time is that I attempted this starting in July, end of July. And at the time we were in the middle of the pandemic, a lot of gyms were closed. And so it was probably like mid July that I actually started hitting the gym again and and lifting weights and doing like anaerobic based workouts and doing a lot of resistance weight training, which is also going to help support testosterone levels. But you know, the thing is, is that I started the weights coinciding and with at the like a couple of weeks, honestly, before getting my initial blood draw to see where my baseline levels at. Could that have contributed to some inflation? Probably. Is it to account for all of the, the, the increases in testosterone levels that I got? I don't think it's just from the exercise, but I haven't really tested my testosterone outside of those other, those two times I did last year. So it would have been nice too, to kind of see like, well, in a non-pandemic year, when I was routinely training weight training, like what, what is typically my, my testosterone levels at? So that was only the only other thing that I could have tried to control for. Yeah, that makes sense. Exercise, like you're saying, definitely plays a role, but it would have been nice to know, like you said, what was it during your heyday of lifting? What was your testosterone levels? But regardless, pretty, pretty interesting anecdotal evidence that red light therapy may actually play a decent role in improving testosterone levels. So walk us down the molecular cellular level path. What's going on? What did you learn that red light therapy may be doing to enhance testosterone levels? 
Yeah. And so kind of going back to what we were talking about in this conversation, it really comes back to mitochondrial health. Healthy functioning mitochondria are really important in steroid hormone production. So we call this steroidogenesis and your sex hormones that can be estradiol, it can be testosterone, uh, pregnenolone and progesterone. Um, these are all steroid hormones and they use cholesterol as that backbone to make these sex hormones. And so this is why um, having good amount of healthy fats in the diet and, and optimal test, uh, cholesterol levels, because, you know, cholesterol often gets demonized um, as being bad. And, you know, we don't want too little cholesterol, but we also don't want too much. And so cholesterol, again, if we don't have enough of that precursor, that building block, we literally can't make those sex hormones. But really, you know, your testosterone um, is made in these cells called your Leydig cells in the testes. And they respond to uh, what is called luteinizing hormone that is, is, you know, secreted from a structure in the brain. And this is what we call your hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. So hypothalamic pituitary being structures on the brain, gonadal being the gonads. So again, the brain communicating via the brain testes axis to tell your Leydig cells to make testosterone. And it does this by communicating specifically with your star receptors, which are in the mitochondria. So there again is where it kind of comes back to mitochondrial function and those wavelengths of light simulating those chromophores within the electron transfer chain, and it can absorb red and near infrared light. So those chromophores are mainly um, cytochrome C oxidase, and they can increase the production of cellular energy. So ATP, as well as nitric oxide, which is important for vasodilation and increasing blood flow. You think about like erectile dysfunction, oftentimes that has to do with, it could be um, atherosclerosis of the penile artery where you're just not getting enough blood flow to the penis. It can be, you know, signs of any type of um, heart disease and atherosclerosis. So hardening of the arteries impairs blood flow. Um, so that can contribute to, you know, erectile dysfunction. So nitric oxide is really going to help to open up those blood vessels and get more blood flow so that that penile tissue can expand and engorge support a full-on erection. So nitric oxide is important. And um, that kind of comes back to oxygenation of the tissue and healthy blood flow. So, you know, really from this whole experience, it was, I think, coming back to optimizing mitochondria, energy, blood flow, and oxygenation. Those were kind of the big takeaways. Gotcha. That makes sense. And that's kind of the motif with red light therapy in general is optimizing the health of the mitochondria, reducing inflammation, improving circulation, doing those three things, a lot of good stuff's going to happen. And you may have already mentioned this when you said your uh, protocol, but were you using red and or near infrared? I was using both red okay. and near infrared. Interesting. So I'm in the process of developing the third edition to that ebook and combing through the research for testosterone. There's close to nothing, even animal studies. There's, there's close to nothing. There's just a lot of anecdotal evidence. And I think it was last summer, there was a professional uh, major league pitcher who sent me his wellness FX and he had done his blood levels for years. So you could see it way back, even when he was playing baseball, I would imagine his testosterone levels. And then he pointed to where he started using red light therapy. And it was just a massive inflection point of his testosterone levels going up. I think he was hovering around uh, the low to mid and high five hundreds when he started using red light therapy. Um, I forget how long, three months, six months, it went up a solid 200 points as well. Wow. So I didn't ask him if he'd done anything else either, but it's just all this anecdotal is building up. A lot of the biohackers, the post, they're saying the same things. So I'd love to see 
some solid scientific research done. I agree with you. And here's another thing I would like to, to, to bring into the equation as well. So kind of as we were talking about the beginning of this conversation too, that in naturopathic medicine, not only do you have to give your body those raw materials and establish those good foundations for health, but you also have to remove the offending factors that could be leading to lower testosterone as well. So this is, so mitochondrial is health is just one piece. You also have to consider what are all these other root causes that could taint somebody's testosterone in the first place. And if we're not removing some of these offending factors, well, then there may not respond as well to the treatment. It's the same kind of idea with like, let's say stem cells. Like there's going to be certain people that are better candidates for stem cell and respond better because based on their bodily terrain, they have the right cues and they're going to take that information. It's going to tell those cells to differentiate a certain way and, or it's going to secrete those various growth factors that in the context of that environment is going to lead to a favorable and beneficial response. And other people, they may not get that. And that's, I think, the hard part of research is to, you know, when you try to standardize these things to say, is it just the red light therapy? It's hard because if you don't also address some of these other pieces, like, does somebody have sleep issues? Like, do they have chronic obstructive sleep apnea? Because that is going to tank your testosterone. Are they exposed to a bunch of environmental toxins like plasticizers and BPA and phthalates, which are xenoestrogens that are going to suppress that HPG access and also um, contribute to mitochondrial dysfunction? Are there subclinical nitrant micronutrient deficiencies? Um, are they obese? Because we know that the more uh, adiposity you have, the more inflammation from adipokines, but also there's greater aromatase activity where you're converting that testosterone into estrogen. Um, think like gynecomastia in men where they have you know, more um, larger breasts. And then I think about alcohol consumption. I think about certain medications that people may be on, which of course, this is something that you could do as part of, you know, exclusion criteria. If you're trying to, you know, uh, standardize a, a well thought out um, randomized controlled trial in a way, or I guess not a randomized controlled trial, but a, a trial looking at the benefits of red light therapy, but there's all these different factors that need to be um, addressed and making sure that we have that optimal terrain and environment for a favorable response. Yeah, needless to say, many variables at play w with anything, but um, especially when dealing with your hormones. What else have you noticed with red light therapy? I know you um, mentioned skin health, probably energy levels, the testosterone potentially. What else have you noticed? Any other um, nicks or knacks in your body, like aches or pains that have been remedied or anything else like that? Yeah, all, definitely all those three, skin health being a big one. I would say one of my favorite things for red light too is just acute injury um, and, 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 and facilitating that healing response. So um, I've had dental procedures before or uh, little minor surgeries where I'll use red light therapy on that and it will heal so quickly. Um, and I'll use that typically two to three times in a day. So I'm using it um, you know, for uh, a, a certain amount of time, but I'm using it more frequently um, to really help with that and expedite that healing response. Um, but also like maybe I had hit a hard day in the gym. I kind of alluded to this earlier and maybe, uh, the next day I wake up a little bit sore, definitely using red light therapy and near infrared. And I just feel like my body's more pliable. It's less stiff, less sore. Um, and again, kind of helping with that athletic recovery, um, component. Gotcha. And so if there's someone sitting on the fence, they're kind of looking from the outskirts with all this information about red light therapy, photobiomodulation, and they're kind of on the fence as to whether or not they should purchase a device what would you tell them, given your background, your knowledge, and your experience, you know, experience being a naturopath and experience with red light therapy? It's a great question. You know, being a naturopathic doctor, I would say, let's establish the foundations for health first. It would behoove you to get your diet in check, to optimize sleep, 
to, you know, reduce stress. Um, and so like dial in those other pillars before just trying to purchase another item as um, kind of almost like a silver bullet to all your health ailments. And you're going to get the best response when you, if you do both, right? So you can definitely utilize it, but I don't want people to get this picture. Like this is a substitute for all these other pillars that we were talking about that are necessary for good health. And again, when you dial in those foundational pillars, you're going to get an even more favorable response, in my opinion, out of red light therapy. The other thing too, with red light therapy, like if someone's like on the fence, should I try it? Should I not? I have the, I have the money in my budget and I'm just trying to decide if I should do it. I always think about whenever I'm going to make a, co- a recommendation on something, I think about costs and the financial barrier, of course. Um, but if finances are not a, a, a burden for somebody or a concern, um, then I always think about the benefits, the cost benefit analysis type of thing like that. So is there potential for harm with these things? And what is it that people could gain from this? So with like a lot of pharmaceuticals, let's say, if I was going to recommend a, a medication, I can say, here's this, this is how it's going to potentially benefit you, but these are also the potential side effects or risks of taking this. So you're kind of thinking about what are the risks? What are the benefits? And whenever I'm recommending something, I want to think about what at large has the greatest potential therapeutic window. So there's like a high probability that this is going to be beneficial and very low probability that it's going to cause harm. With red light therapy, I see it as one of those things that can have a very high therapeutic uh, probability and a low negative outcome. Yes, you can do too much red light therapy and you could also stare directly into those lights and for 30 minutes, and that probably isn't going to be good for your retinal health. And so, you know, actually someone was just asking about, you know, can you look at red light and is it good for your eyes? And it's like, well, early research suggests like, yeah, it can be beneficial. I wouldn't stare directly at it kind of like an off gaze, but again, it's going to help with all those things we were talking about too, with mitigating oxidative stress and inflammation, improving mitochondrial membrane potential and function. So yes, that would be kind of my answer is looking at the cost, but thinking about, yes, there's a large therapeutic benefit, low risk. It is, you know, think about hormesis. So not too little, not too much, just right. It's like a porridge. Um, and then again, establish those good foundations for health. Gotcha. Love that answer. And Tyler, you mentioned that you have a course that you've been trying to put together for some time, but it's probably going to be available this uh, fall or so. Could you give us a little breakdown of what that is so people can uh, keep their eyes peeled for that? Yeah. Now that I'm done with graduation, I, um, in school, I can really focus on some of these other projects that I'm really excited to bring to everyone. And one of them is a course on nutrition and it's going to be one of a kind, uh, in depth. It's a 10 week course, uh, with 10 modules on integrative and holistic nutrition. And I'm really bringing in my experience as a naturopathic doctor and bringing in a lot of nuance to the conversations about all of not only talking about macronutrients and micronutrients and meal synergy, um, but talking about all of these diets that are out there that have gotten quite dogmatic, to be honestly. So I'm going to dive into carnivore diets and paleo and keto and vegan, and also talk about a lot of these other food groups that we've started to demonize like nightshades and lectins and oxalates. And it's like, what, what are the, where, who may be better suited for this type of diet or eliminating certain foods and who may not and why that is. Cause I'm all about the nuanced discussion and how nutrition is always context dependent and that it needs to be individualized. And so I hope people feel empowered with this information and that they feel that they can shop the grocery aisles and feel empowered about reading food labels, but also what food they need to nourish their body and also feel like they have more food freedom. And that realizing like this, that there's certain foods that may or may not work for them. And this is why, uh, but again, kind of empowering people by having that knowledge so that they can feel more empowered when it comes to their health. Gotcha. I, I love that, Dr. Jane. I think there's going to be a massive demand for that. 
Because right now, people probably walk down the aisles if they're not confident, they don't know what to buy. And like you're talking about, especially from a naturopathic perspective, the nutrients nourishing the body. If you don't know what to choose, chances are you're probably not choosing the most nourishing stuff. So I think that's going to be a great course for people to look into. And I'll, I'll definitely be checking it out. So, so thanks for sharing that. Lastly, before we sign off, um, from your you know, naturopathic doctor perspective, what are some things that people could be implementing today? We've probably already talked about it, perhaps. What could they be implementing today to optimize their health, wellness, and longevity? Oh, I love that question. Um, and I'm going to give ones that I think are tangible and actionable, and most of these are going to be free. Trying to get a consistent wake time. So we were kind of talking about that in, in optimizing your circadian rhythm. Try to wake up within about half an hour of when you typically would wake up, give or take, plus or minus, uh, including weekends. That's going to really help to anchor you for your day, um, support energy and proper hormone function, and get more in line with that circadian rhythm, which is going to lead to better sleep. And on that note too, really trying to start to prioritize sleep. I used to be somebody that, you know, in college, I would pull all-nighters, like it was nobody's business. I thought I was one of those people that's like, I didn't need to sleep. I can function on two hours of sleep. And really, you know, I was just making it through because I was on amphetamines because <laughs> I have a past diagnosis of ADHD. And so, um, you know, really that's what was getting me through. But the more I've learned about sleep, the more I've learned to prioritize sleep and how much better I feel with sleep. And really my ADHD was masquerading as insufficient sleep. And so really just prioritizing my sleep and making a couple of dietary adjustments. I no longer believe I have ADHD. I feel like I'm, I'm fully functioning and don't have that brain fog and, um, and processing delay that I used to, um, you know, deal with for the majority of my life, uh, for a good 20, 23 years. Um, so prioritize sleep, uh, get out, get sunshine, get out as much as you can, 10 or 20 minutes, whatever works for you, especially during the day on your lunch, on your lunch break, try to, you know, take 10 minutes to walk after a meal. If you, if it allows it, if you have like a 30 minute lunch break, hit focus on moving your body. Maybe that starts with walking, trying to get 5,000, trying to get 8,000 or 10,000 steps. Um, oftentimes, you know, we have this all or nothing approach, but every little step adds up. And then the other piece I would add to is to try to focus on incorporating more wholesome nutrient dense foods and thinking about how you can add more color to your meals. Maybe you eat out for 11 meals out of 21 meals a week if you're eating three meals a day. So maybe you're trying to, the goal would just be to try to make one or two more home cooked meals a week. And then from there, you know, maybe you can try to do more meals from home and stuff like that, or incorporate more whole foods or go to the grocery store and pick something that is in season, a seasonal fruit vegetable, it's typically cheaper. And maybe you don't know what to do with it, but, you know, search some blogs, find out what you can make with that. And I think it inspires some creativity. It gets in more nutrient diversity and the more diverse of, you know, fruits and vegetables we can get into our diet in terms of fiber is going to be more um, better for a robust digestive system and our gut microbiome. So, you know, those are kind of places I would start. So um, to kind of just recap all those, really prioritizing sleep, getting sun exposure first thing in the morning. And even if it's not sunny out, yes, the overcast skies is still better than being indoors in artificial light. Going to the store, trying a, you know, a fruit or vegetable that's in season that you've never tried before and try cooking with it, trying to incorporate more wholesome nutrient dense foods and adding more color, not Skittles, but fruits and vegetables, moving your body, I think is so important. Um, so whatever that is for you, um, whatever you can do within your capacity, just try to get outside and move your body. I love that answer. A lot of it is free or very low cost, but very, very high reward. I love that. So where can people go to find out more about you, Tyler, and uh, learn about what you're doing and with all the information you're providing? 
Yeah, I hang out the most on Instagram at functional.food. So you can find me there and follow for um, uh, lots of um, empowering content around health, wellness, and nutrition. Um, I also have my website, tylergene.com, which is also a wealth of information. Uh, if you're ever wondering what products I use or I have blog posts, you can go and check that over there. I also have an anti-inflammatory recipe ebook for those that are trying to transition to a healthier lifestyle, but want food to taste good, but also don't know what are the more common foods that could be problematic and, and how to make food nourishing. Um, I lay that out for them with 40 recipes um, and they are all gluten, dairy, and refined sugar-free. Most of them are egg-free and most of them are actually grain-free as well. And so I also have a YouTube channel, which I'm hoping to uh, invest more time in now that I'm uh, done with my school obligations, but that's really just interviewing other healthcare providers and uh, providing actual information on that platform. Awesome. Well, Dr. Tyler Jean, it's been a pleasure having you on uh, the podcast. Your, your enthusiasm, your, your passion is very infectious. It's very obvious. Uh, your, your patients are very lucky to have you. And I'm grateful that you were able to take this time out of your busy schedule to be on the Red Light Report. So thank you very much for taking the time for this episode. Well, thank you for having me, Mike. It was my pleasure. All right, guys. For Dr. Mike Belkowski and Dr. Tyler Jean, they were signing out of the Red Light Report. Everyone have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Red Light Report. If you like what you heard today, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes and other podcast platforms to help spread the word so other people can learn about the many health, wellness, and longevity benefits of red light therapy. If you're looking for more educational content, check out our Instagram page at biolight.shop and our YouTube channel, Biolight. I'm Dr. Mike Belkowski, and I'll see you on the next episode.